Hi, and welcome to the Brewery FM podcast, hosted by Scott Hogue and Dan Usher. Just two techies with a giant ocean between us, talking cloud, technology, and things we don't know about. I'm Scott Hogue, and this is episode six, recorded on 11 March 2015. Good morning, Dan. Good morning, Scott. What's going on, man? Uh, you know, just another day in paradise. Nice. I... Working on uh, uh, reacclimating to the Sydney heat as opposed to uh, the heat of the Great Barrier Reef in Cairns. Cairns? You're sitting in Cairns? I was in Cairns. We, t- we took the kids snorkeling, wanted to see some parrotfish, got to see a few white-tipped sharks, some hawksbill turtles, some green turtles, all sorts of fun stuff. Uh, went on a nice dreamtime walk through the rainforest with some of the aboriginals up there. I got to learn a little bit about uh, the culture and the way they used to live, swim in a, a freshwater gorge with some of the purest water on earth. They're, they're very nice. They point out that it is the second purest water source on earth. Um, so nice. You can just hop right in and have a sip of some uh, river water. Nice. That uh, kind of sounds a little different. Uh, very cool. Um so it's uh what is today scott today is winds today is march 11th yeah so depending on which part of the world you live so i'm going to pretend it's march 11th and pretend that the sun is rising in the dc metro area um but uh yeah so we're we're recording a day early i guess um so uh what have you been up to man besides the canes i mean you got back you Decided to retake Sydney. Anything else uh, cool and interesting going on your side of the planet? Not really. You know, just doing the uh, doing doing the client work thing. Lots of uh, documentation for uh, phase of the project we're in right now. So kind of the the bane of uh, every consultant's existence is sitting in Word, Excel, PowerPoint, and our good friend MS Project. Uh, just trying to. Uh, plan this sucker out and, and get it to a point where we can actually start actioning it. Gotcha. Yeah. That, uh, I know those were always my bane days as well as when it was the, not actually getting to work inside of Azure or AWS or SharePoint or some tech system, but, uh, droning away at writing and yeah, you know, they're good days when you get to write and they're bad days when you get to write. Uh, fortunately for us here back in the DC area, at least on Tuesday, uh, it was raining a little bit, so you know it's more of that chill day where you're kind of okay with not uh, being innovative and whatnot. But no, I definitely feel for you, man. That uh, that stinks that you're not getting to do some of the more fun stuff that uh, I know that you and I like to do. So, huh? I'm sure it's coming down the pipe. We'll get to it eventually. Oh, yeah, I mean, <clears throat> if I got to play today, then that means you'll get to play tomorrow, and since you're not playing today that means tomorrow i'll be drudging away in word and kind of scratching my head wondering what i do for a living but um anyway um that uh sounds like a fun weekend at least down in uh, canes and whatnot and i'm guessing the boys love that and uh yeah 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 not too bad the water's a lot warmer up there you know the uh... Uh, the water down in Sydney, when you go to the ocean, you go to the beach, the beaches look beautiful, and they are beautiful. And you look at the water, and it's nice, crystal clear blue. It looks like it should be very inviting and warm, uh, kind of like the Caribbean, if you've ever been down there. You know, just jump right in, and it's bath water. And then you hit the water, and it's about 
50, 55 degrees Fahrenheit and you just want to hop right out and scream because it's, it's so cold hopping in, really no matter how warm it is outside. But up in Queensland, at least that far north up where we were, uh, quite a bit warmer. So uh, we went to the beach on Saturday and Sunday and water was about 86, 87 Fahrenheit. So just go ahead, jump right in, uh, have a go at snorkeling and some other things. So uh, definitely a nice change of pace and, and something different to do. Yeah, no, definitely definitely sounds like it. Um, back here uh, stateside, <clears throat> um, at least for myself, ended up uh, unfortunately missing out on uh, SPS Philly. So the snow and everything that came down last Thursday um, pretty much came down and stuck to the ground pretty nicely they estimated somewhere between four and eight inches of snow we definitely got closer to that eight inches um and you i i know you remember like the dc area and how they dealt with snow and or rather how they didn't deal with snow um it was uh it was kind of messy um so knowing that and knowing that the uh, folks up in pennsylvania got it worse than we did kind of became one of those well i'm not gonna a, try and get out of my neighborhood, and B, deal with the uh, slush and ice on the road. So, unfortunately, I had to bow out of that one. Um, ended up on Saturday evening just kind of hanging out with a few friends. Uh, was able to get out of the neighborhood, which was nice. Um, and then Sunday, uh, ended up uh, out with friends for the better part of the day, which um, was, you know, kind of nice uh, to actually see a little bit of sunshine and uh, fortunately, things are starting to warm back up here in the D.C. area. It's hard to believe that less than a week ago we were getting, you know, pounded with snow and uh, near sub-zero degrees. But it is what it is, I guess, right? Yeah, I can't even imagine what that's like. I'm, I'm enjoying my tropical lifestyle, and I shall continue to enjoy it for as long as I can. Nice. And you can continue to be jealous. I, I will. Um, but uh, for anybody out there that's curious, uh, we would love feedback. We'd love anything you'd like us to talk about. Uh, Scott and I love to talk. Uh, but if you're looking to get a hold of us, you can hit us up at info at brewery.fm. Um, pretty easy. Send us a note. Uh, if you've got a question for us that you want us to answer on the show, uh, feel free to record yourself as a M4A or as a WAV file or an MP3 or whatever your heart desires and send it over to us over email. Uh, we'll weave it in using GarageBand and play that into the show. So we'd love to have some questions out there for anybody that's curious. Tim Farrow, this means you. Um, also, for anybody out there of our 12 listeners, uh, we would love to get your feedback on iTunes. So if you use iTunes, uh, feel free to go through and give us a you know quick rating. That does help. That also gives us feedback to let us know whether or not we need to improve on things. Um, and last but not least, uh, you know, social media. Like us on Facebook or follow us on the Twitter. Uh, you can find us out on Twitter at Brewery FM. You can find us on Facebook as well. We'd love to have you guys engage with us as much as we're engaging with you. So, uh, Scott, we got a couple items for follow-up. Um, <clears throat> I know we had talked last week about uh, the World Education Alliance. Uh, I was talking with a few folks, um, and they mentioned that it actually started back up in 2008. That would explain why nobody had heard of it last week, because it had been around for six years already. Yeah, uh, and surprisingly, it started off with uh, the Mindsharp and the Mindsharp of the West, or I guess of the East. Uh, the Combined Knowledge, APAC and Combined Knowledge folks were a part of that. So 
who knew? Um, apparently it's been around for a while, and I guess it was more just kind of a, hey, look, uh, our friends over at Critical Path Training are joining the, you know, crowd, and kind of like uh, we had uh, discussed last week, it does seem to be that uh, they're still each staying separate, but they're uh, working together to help make certain that uh, folks are able to find the appropriate training through the appropriate partner. So good stuff. Very good stuff. Yeah. Uh, let's see. What else do we have this week? Uh, Apple had their event earlier this week. You got any thoughts on that? You're going to be rushing out, buying a watch, you know, maybe with a Milanese loop and uh, what? I, I think you're what, an 18 karat gold kind of guy? Yeah. You know, I was thinking that uh, that 10K investment or that 17K investment is definitely worth it. Um, I'm really looking forward to getting that. It'll go great with my silver Starbucks card that I got around Christmas. Um, I'm all in. Why not? Uh, but no, no, seriously, uh, I think uh, if I go down the path of picking up an Apple Watch, it'll probably be the Apple Watch Sport, and it'll probably end up being the 42mm uh, edition, but outside of that, I can't see myself spending, uh, you know, more than the $400 for that, uh, that device, uh, especially since, you know, it only has the day, uh, the 18-hour charge, and the fact that it is... Uh, GPS-less, which, as you and I both have discussed, isn't really that big a concern because we probably still have our, our phone with us, and our phone has GPS, so not that big a deal. But uh, all in all, the the Apple event didn't really strike me as being all that amazing. Um, I did find the... Uh, it's Johnny Ives, I think. Um, or is it Tony? No, it's Johnny Ives, excuse me, all you Mac people out there. Um, with the videos that he made, I think if any other company went out there and, you know, put together videos like that, their products would be selling like crazy because it really does just kind of draw you in, engage you and make you go, holy smokes, that's how Apple does it. Wow. They've got, uh, they've got people out in these different I, I, I just got one, one, one word for you, Dan. Yeah. Aluminium. Aluminium. Uh, that's all you need. You throw out al aluminium into a video and all is right with the world. Um, you know, Apple's always great at those videos, right? Those were not uh, your run-of-the-mill kind of, you know, internal people doing that. Those looked like really professional directors and things. You know, they, they, they had the shots of making the stainless steel watch and, and actually creating those stainless steel bars. And, and a lot of that stuff was just shot beautifully, really cool kind of stuff. Still doesn't make me want to watch. I mean, I, I'm a gadgeteer and... and you know, generally would hop all over that stuff, but there's really not much that's compelling there for me. I've already got, you know, all the Fitbits and Misfits and, and things like that running around. Uh, so one more device is just going to probably complicate my life more than make it easier. Yeah, I think, uh, at least in my case, I still am using my Fitbit One. Um, I'm still wearing my Casio watch, and I don't have a huge desire to start wearing a Fitbit on my wrist. Uh, the only one that at least interests me is that Fitbit Charge HR. Um, kind of like we said, you know, hey, we really don't need to have a GPS built into the device because I'm probably still going to have my phone with me and that's more than enough. So I think at least, you know, the Apple Watch looks nice. I'm sure a lot of people will buy it. Um, good on them. I'm not too interested at least yet. So the, uh, the other thing that popped up that I think uh, you and I kind of chatted a little bit about was the HBO Now component, which 
Um, I'm not a huge HBO fan. I haven't really watched more than a couple episodes of Game of Thrones, but I could see, you know, having the ability to go back and watch all of the HBO stuff being something that for, I guess, 15 bucks a month isn't that bad a deal to, you know, be able to watch uh, whatever it is you want. And if you want to go binge watch all of Game of Thrones during a period of month, uh, more power to you. Uh, But yeah, it's that's pretty cool i don't know what your thoughts on that are i don't know i think you mentioned you might actually be one of their first subscribers but yeah i'm, I'm gonna be all over this so uh, living in australia and not having a u.s cable account means you know we have to piggyback off other people who are nice enough to let us hop on and we have to use proxies and a bunch of other things uh, so I'll still be in proxy land, but I will gladly give HBO $15 a month for Game of Thrones, the movies, the programming, everything else. I, I think that's a hugely uh, compelling offering, and I'll just combine that with Netflix and Hulu and the other things that uh, we're doing to kind of be a cord cutter household. Um, you, you know, a lot of people think cord cutting is about saving a little bit of money. I don't necessarily look at it that way. I'm probably going to end up spending about the same amount as if I had cable in the U.S., uh, but the nice thing is it's it's on my terms and it lets me do what I want to do. Um, and I know you're not a big fan of HBO, but I'm, I'm telling you, you got to go out there and watch some of that stuff. Uh, one of the greatest jokes, like 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 one of the best jokes ever. It's 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 a little dirty, um, but from uh, Silicon Valley, uh, they they have a joke about uh, mean jerk time. Just go out and uh, you know Google Bing it, do whatever. Uh, watch that. It'll be one of the funniest things uh, you'll probably see today. Got it. Okay, I'll uh, I'll have to check that out sometime. Not quite certain what that entails. Um, yeah, don't 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 do it at work on on the on the corporate network. Okay. Wait until you're at home and uh, gotcha. uh, You know, on your on your own time. Gotcha. So I want to reserve the bandwidth, is what you're telling me. Got it. Um, yeah. So the other the other cool thing that uh, kind of popped up, um, I guess that you had been talking about and you had been hoping for and cheering on was the Narnia laptop, as we'll call it, um, the, the Retina MacBook. So they they did release it. Um, I'm kind of, uh, I'm on the fence. So I've got, you know, my MacBook Pro and I've got my MacBook Air and I use the MacBook Air when I want to take something with me that's lightweight. Uh, looking at the MacBook, I'm, you know, I'm heavily thinking about getting rid of the MacBook Air and switching over to that. And the only thing that is kind of the, you know, the one thing that's the limiting factor is, oh, yeah, we're going from, a, I guess, some sort of processor, I want to say an Ivy Bridge to a Core M. And I don't know if I can uh, let myself do that. So uh, we'll, we'll see. My seven word review was Retina MacBook Drool Core M. Not cool. Um, <laughs> that, that, that kind of summed it up. Um, you know, I, I have a MacBook Pro and a Mac Mini and a couple of other things kicking around the house. Uh, my MacBook Pro is definitely getting long in the tooth. Uh, it's had some upgrades over the years to uh, SSDs and gotten rid of the CD and things like CD-ROM drive and put an SSD in there on that side, things like that. Um, you know, but it's it, it's big, it's heavy, it's bulky. I don't like unplugging it. I treat it more as a desktop than anything else these days. Uh, so I could really see myself probably being able to get by with a Core M, uh, especially for a lot of the workloads that I do, uh, you know, being heavily kind of cloud-based with clients and things like that. I tend to be RDPing and remoting into machines all day anyway. So as long as I can run things like the CLIs and, and that tooling to get things done, 
and then have the ability to, to remote in and, and fire things up when I need to. That might be sufficient. Uh, you know, it's, it's generally about just about having connectivity to those things. So as long as I have my phone on me and I can tether up, um, you know, Bob's your uncle, we'll just, we'll just go ahead and see what happens there. Uh, waiting for a Nantech or somebody like that to come out with a review of it. I'm really interested to see if they've made any optimizations. You know, OS X is generally uh, a little bit better with memory usage and other things than Windows. So I, I, I want to see how it handles that retina display, if there's any kind of jankiness and scrolling or things like that uh, before I, you know, go, go and really have a serious think about picking one up. Then I'll have to go play with it in the store. Uh, have some internal angst over spending all the money on it, go back and forth for a month or so, and then I'll probably just break down and buy one. So it'll be like other purchases you've made where we all kind of mock the uh, folks that are actually in the store. Got it. Yeah, I, I, I never mock them. I just have my own personal battles to get through there and be able to finally swipe the credit card and say, yes, it shall be mine. Yeah, and I mean, that <clears throat> that feeling like you mentioned is kind of one of those better feelings maybe just in the sense of you know you're walking in and uh you're making the purchase i know when i bought my macbook pro uh pre-ordered it online and walked in the store and pretty much said okay here's my credit card take my money or actually i didn't even have to do that he just said hey can i see your driver's license and i handed that to him and they said okay here you go so i didn't quite go through the same uh the same feeling but i definitely have gone through that same do I buy this? Do I not buy this? How will this gadget work for me? What will it replace? Yes, and I, I know exactly what you're talking about in that regard. So, Yeah, you know, sometimes it's hard to be a geek, but we find a way. We persevere. I know, and a lot of people, they say, uh, you probably aren't going to go and just, you know, buy that immediately. You're probably, or you probably are just going to go buy that immediately. You're not going to have to go in, put it on, look in a mirror, you know, do all these different things that uh, <clears throat> some people do. Um you know, so I think uh, that uh, that piece of things of being a geek, it hurts at times. It really does. But um, so a couple other things we had in the follow up. One was about user voice. Uh, I know we had talked about how uh, OneDrive for Business had been put out there for uh, Mac and how that was one of those things that we were both mostly excited about, just in the sense that it would be available to us to be able to sync and one of the things that I think we all noticed right off the bat was, hey, we can't actually point it to sync at other document libraries. And I know uh, we both were like, ah, no, 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 they're going to have that eventually. They're going to have that in the next release probably, right? Uh, well, out, out on user voice, um, it would seem that actually that's not in kind of the swim lane apparently or the focus as it said. So uh, hopefully at some point down the road, the OneDrive for Business Client will have the same capability that it has on the Windows side, where you can point it at a SharePoint document library and have it replicate. But I guess in the short term, really, it's just to continue to just sync OneDrive for Business. So I guess it is what it is. Yeah, it's kind of disappointing Yeah, to, to see them kind of be single sourced on that and say, you know, here's our sync tool and it's only going to sync to this one place. Uh, I've been having a go with the Office for Mac preview this week, and it's been really, really, really bad about being able to hook up to external services, uh, particularly Office 365. Um, so I, I finally got it to connect over to OneDrive um, with a Microsoft account, but it refuses to connect to work accounts. It has a really weird uh, authentication flow for me. 
where I basically I'm, I'm presented with that kind of uh, the STS on Microsoft side really three different times to go through and do the login. So it's, it's really strange. Something's broken there, you know, in that, in that build for me. I know you said it works for you, um, works on your machine, doesn't work on mine. Um, and, and there were some things that were working great. Like OneDrive for Business, that sync client was working uh, just stellar. I've been using it actually quite a bit. Um, it's helped with uh, being able to stay on my Mac a little bit more during the day. Uh, but I've noticed since installing uh, the uh, Office Preview for Mac, the, the, the latest one for Office 2016, it's done some funky things. So uh, previously I had Outlook and OneDrive installed separately. And now Outlook is part of that bigger installer, so it, it screwed up some things with Outlook. And now I notice every time I go ahead and start up the OneDrive for Business client, like say I have to do a reboot. You know, yesterday we had a security release come out for OS X, restart required. So go ahead and do that reboot. Anytime OneDrive starts up now, uh, OneDrive for Business, it has to rebuild an internal cache, um, and it's crashing after about half an hour every time. It just sits there and. Um, you know, I can mouse over everything else in my menu bar, but if I mouse over the OneDrive client, uh, it just sits there and beach balls and laughs at me and, you know, then you have to go into Activity Monitor and kill it. So, uh, it definitely has some rough edges to it. Uh, hopefully, you know, those things come along over time. The, the cadence has been really good for, uh, pushing those things out and seeing what we can do with them. Um, so, you know, month to month, hopefully we see, uh, a, a couple more things out there. Uh, the other thing I'd like to see is I noticed when uh, Office Preview for Mac dropped, that brought the version up to 15.8. Uh, so some things that was already running, like the Outlook client was on 15.3. The Microsoft updater doesn't pick those things up. So, uh, you know, you have to be kind of cognizant of what's out there um, and be able to go out and grab some of those things on your own. Yeah, I noticed, uh, <clears throat> I noticed the 15.8 bit as well in the uh i guess office 2016 for mac preview and i am hoping that uh <clears throat> some of that will start to work a little bit better with the updater i'm not totally certain when that's going to happen but uh you know it'll be interesting to actually have things on the mac be close to uh, what we see over on uh, the good old side of things in PC Windows land. So I think we're, we're always going to see in some regard probably the Windows side get uh, uh, first-class citizen status. Um, but who knows? We might see uh, <clears throat> that become you know more on par on the Mac side. So we can only, only guess. Um, the last item we had in feedback, or follow-up, excuse me, was Superfish. And I always want to sing, like, Superfish, Superfish, but I know it's nothing to do with it. Uh, so apparently... Yeah, that'll be your next album. <laughs> we we got we go. it. Usher, Usher drops Superfish. There we go. Uh, so it was one of those, uh, you know, articles over on ours that uh, was a little interesting to read that folks were going out and still buying consumer laptops that were being imaged by Lenovo. And even though Lenovo had said Superfish will no longer be a part of our image build, uh, apparently they haven't started using a new image build, or they haven't gone back and you know refreshed all the images that were already pre-pressed on the machines waiting to be shipped. So apparently it's still out there. It's still getting shipped out to folks. Uh, seems like some of a debacle, but who knows? Maybe maybe someday we will be able to buy laptops from Lenovo that do not have Superfish. 
Yeah, you, you know, Microsoft even came out and they updated Windows Defender and things to, to just pick this up and clean it up. Um, so hopefully over time, as, as folks go through and do updates, uh, they'll automatically get those fixes pushed down to them, hopefully. Uh, and we can hope that Lenovo learned its lesson. It's going to ship maybe a smidgen less uh, crapware or, or bloatware on their machines out. Uh, we, we'll see how that goes and, and where things end up. That's, you know, kind of a hope. Yeah, could definitely, definitely hope for that. <clears throat> um, uh, realizing we only have so much time in the day, so many hours in the day, and we've got a lot of meaty stuff. Um, so, Scott, I'm going to let you take it away and hop into the Azure segment. Yeah, I, I thought it'd be fun to take a little bit of time and, and dive into some of the new stuff that comes out. So uh, hopefully folks have heard about this stuff. If not, excellent. After this, they'll know a little bit more about it. Um, so one of the places I wanted to start out, just because we go over this uh, so much with uh, clients and with uh, new prospects, and we hear about it all the time at user groups and everything else. I'm sure you live in this land a little bit too, having to architect solutions for clients, is working through pricing cloud solutions. And one of the big things with that uh, is often... Um, how much is this really going to cost us? So a lot of organizations seem to have um, a, a, a bit of trouble with making this switch from uh, CapEx to OpEx. So they're going from that, you know, I had 100K for my data center last year, and now I'm going to switch over and I'm going to spend maybe 75K a month on Azure or AWS, but I, I really don't know. Um, so pricing those solutions can be, uh, a little bit out there and, and, and a little bit difficult, right? You kind of have to know what you're doing. Sometimes I wish, you know, we had certifications for things on the Windows side uh, for like Microsoft licensing. I really think there should be a certification for Azure pricing. Um, AWS has some of that stuff with some of their sales accreditations and things like that. Um, but one of the really big confusing things I run into on the pricing side, outside of just how do we do it and everything else that goes on, is uh, how does Azure compare to AWS or how does AWS compare to Azure or Google Compute and things like that. Um, so one of the big things out there that not a lot of people realize, at least in the conversations I have, um, is most of these big uh, you know, compute providers, these IaaS providers, uh, they have some measure of price matching in place. So Google Compute will come out and they'll say, okay, we've dropped our price on Database Engine X. Um, and then what happens is AWS steps up behind them and says, okay, you know, we're, we're not going to be beat on price on commodity by somebody like Google, so we're going to match their price as well. And then what happens is Microsoft steps in behind them and says, hey, we're, we're going to price match as well. Um, so these are actually kind of set in stone things that these companies have talked about over time. So Microsoft has come out and says um, and said that you know specifically Azure will always match price drops from AWS on commodity services like compute, storage, and bandwidth. So when we're going out, we're talking, or if uh, you know anybody out there is looking at these solutions and trying to figure out which one's going to be the better price for me, uh, they're probably going to be pretty close to the same at the end of the day. If you're talking about straight compute or storage things like that. It's really when we get into the platform side of things that there's differentiators. So when we start using things like uh, SQL RDS in uh, AWS or we go over to SQL Azure, now those are kind of platform things. 
so a little bit more on that software as a service side. So that's where those uh, vendors can differentiate and push things through. Uh, you, you ever run into that with your clients that, that they, they get confused around the pricing thing and, and really don't understand it that well? Yeah, no, I, <clears throat> I'm with you 100% on that. It's definitely annoying maybe um, when really it comes down to, you know, hey, we want to we want a one-for-one one comparison, and it ends up being, well, we, we can't really give that to you because your environment isn't one-for-one one matching to, you know, IaaS or PaaS. It's probably some mix. So it, it ends up being kind of the conversation of what uh, what components are you really looking for? You know, if you're looking for MapReduce or if you're looking for uh, Glacier-like capabilities, then more than likely uh, it's typically going to be, hey, you should probably go check out these AWS components and how you can tie them in through the APIs to make your solution work. Whereas, you know, if it ends up being something where uh, they come back and they say, hey, we're really interested in being able to do big data, but we've got all of our data um, sitting up in Azure already. How do we how do we tie that across to some Hadoop cluster that we're going to build out on AWS? Um, we typically just, you know, we, we turn around and we say, hey, there's this HD Insight thing that uh, you can have pointed all your data and start using through a plugin in Excel. And they go, holy smokes, there's a plugin in Excel. We don't have to go build some dashboard on top of Hadoop and say, no, it's, it's already there for you. You don't have to do anything. So it, it really does come down to that. But I think, you know, like you mentioned on the pricing side, just the, the confusion factor ends up usually being uh, folks looking at things. Uh, so they'll look at like... Uh, the equivalent of RDS in Azure, they'll look at um, Azure SQL and they'll say, oh, well, I can use Azure SQL for my database and I can tie that into my SharePoint system and I can, you know, use that for my back end and it's not a big deal because all I've got is that one VM that's running SharePoint and I've got Azure SQL running uh, the SQL services that are in the back end for it. And I kind of have to sit there and, you know, shake my head a little bit, breathe in. <sighs> oh, well, um, you know, and then start the conversation of, well, Azure SQL is really more for web-based applications. It's not really meant for uh, full applications to run on top of it. And they go, oh, okay, so we still need a SQL backend. And you go through that and then you look at, you know, do you have licensed mobility through your software assurance? Can you take your SQL server licensing you've got and use that inside of a VM, or does it make more sense to pay for licensing on top of uh, the VM cost uh, using pre-built images and whatnot? So it, it really is kind of confusing. It is one of those things that you have to set aside a good day to, you know, just kind of uh, help them understand. And, you know, sometimes it also goes just kind of the idea of what is their solution they're trying to build so that you can make certain that uh, the pricing and the actual solution meets what they're looking for. So probably, I don't know if you ran into this, but probably the one that kind of cracked me up recently was we were building something out in Azure and we uh, we hit that little bump of what was available in the region. So <clears throat> we were building something out and it said, oh, you don't have G-Series that are available to you. And we went, oh, hmm. Well, I guess we need to uh, detach all of our disks, make images, and start over in another region that has G-Series. So, whoops. Yeah, o always fun to, you know, put in those support tickets and say, hey, can we just uh, slide, you know, this thing from one subscription to another? Or, you know, like you said, being mindful of where those things are deployed. So, 
quite often as new regions come online, particularly for Azure, uh, they're not going to have all of the services that everybody else does. Or sometimes those services come up in a quasi preview mode. They'll say, hey, uh, you know, we're, we're offering Service X in public preview right now um, in Australia uh, because those are brand new data centers. Uh, but for everybody else, you know, those are, those are baked in data centers. They've been around for a while. So, you know, we're going to let you continue to do things uh, as you have. Um, so one of the other things I want to talk about, uh, you know, kind of jumping into that IaaS side of things. Um, I don't know if you've had a chance to play around with uh, resource groups and resource templates in Azure. Not, uh, not a whole kind lot. Of the, kind of the functional equivalent of cloud formation. Uh, templates in AWS. Uh, so, you know, we've got this uh, JSON provisioning model and we, we push a bunch of resources up at once. They'll get pushed into a resource group and then we can manage that resource group holistically. So if we say, say, say we deploy something like a SharePoint farm, a SharePoint farm is typically going to have Active Directory, SQL, and SharePoint. We can put all those inside the same resource group and then maybe when we're done with our solution, say we were doing some testing, and we want to rip it down, we can just go ahead and delete that resource group and it'll actually pull out everything associated with it. So these, these resource templates and everything are kind of built around this concept of let's put everything into groups and manage them that way. Um, and Microsoft has a huge gallery of uh, pre-built images uh, or pre-built templates rather that are out there that uh, folks can uh, either use or in some cases they can even modify for themselves. Um, so one of the interesting ones that's out there um, is for turning on uh, always-on clusters or uh, SQL Server uh, always-on availability groups. Um, so th that resource template's been out there a couple months now. Um, actually, it, it worked really well in the past, but it had some um, uh, a couple of weird things going on with it. So it would always create its own uh, domain, so it would stand up new domain controllers, and it took a little bit of time to run, because if you think about standing up a new solution, um, you know, typically something like that, we've got to provision servers, we've got to install SQL, we've got to turn the instances on, we've got to uh, do all the things we need to do on the cluster side and the DNS side, and we've got to make sure everything's patched and where it needs to be. Um, so they had an update that was released to that um, uh, back in January, and that actually increased uh, the or sorry, decrease the amount of time that it takes to provision. So these used to take about an hour and a half in the past to stand up an always-on cluster with that template. Uh, now it's down to about 45 minutes, which is excellent. So, so now we're kind of under that hour mark um, to stand something up. And always nice to kind of get uh, some increased speed behind that. And they made another big change to it. They let you join an existing Windows domain. So this means that you can stand up a cluster and leverage something that you might have already had going in an existing VNet. Um, or maybe if you've got that site-to-site -site connection and you want to be able to manage that cluster from on-premises and have all those computers in your on-premises AD, things like that, you can actually go ahead and attach back that way. Um, so I, th I thought that was really nice to see and really nice to push out there. And the SQL group is also nice in that they actually publish their templates. So you can go ahead, there's a couple PowerShell commandlets for um, the resource manager that let you go out and pull those templates down. So some teams, like the Azure Websites team, uh, the SQL team, you can actually go and get their templates. Um, the SharePoint team, Bill Baer, kind of annoyed, um, 
they don't actually allow this to happen. So if you try and pull their templates down, it just says, hey, this is what a template would be, but it, it just has one line and it doesn't do anything in it. Um, so not much of a great example, a, a leading example from the SharePoint product group, um, but some of these other product groups are, are pushing things out there and, and letting them happen um, in a really fluid, nice manner. I find SQL Always On to be one of those great ones uh, because it takes hours and hours and hours to configure it manually. Um, if you go out to the Azure kind of MSDN TechNet articles, you know, and you say, I want to provision all this stuff by hand, it takes forever just doing the patching and hopping from this box to this box and the other one. Um, and in inevitably, we're always going to screw something up with the Windows clustering side of things because technically Windows Server failover clusters are not supported uh, in Windows Azure, but we only need the Windows Server failover cluster just for that availability group listener. So it's not a full-on cluster. So there's kind of this uneasy relationship between the SQL team and the team that manages Windows in Azure. Um, but we can go through and get solutions like that up. So this automates the whole thing for us, um, pushes it up and, and, and lets it go. Uh, do you ever see your clients turning things like this on? So it, they've, they've got a bunch of um, templates out there. They've got SQL always on. Um, they've actually also got some SQL templates. I know we did this for a client recently. Um, they, they, they have some uh, data warehouse and transactional workload templates. So if you say, hey, we're going to do some data warehousing kind of workloads. We've got a lot of data we need to crunch. Uh, we need big beefy CPUs. There's a resource template out there for it. You just turn it on, spins up the cluster with everything, gives you your 16 terabytes of disk, and, and you're off to the races. In terms of folks that have been looking at it from a client perspective, the thing we typically have to do is help them understand that there's a difference between the SharePoint template and the SharePoint resource template. So you've got the SharePoint image you can go spin up that has like a, a trial key in it, I think. Um, so we've got, you know, folks that'll go spin that up where it's kind of the all-in-one. And then that resource template, like you mentioned, that is available out there in the Azure portal um, that will spin up the entire farm. I think the one, uh, the thing that we've come across that always, you know, is kind of is what it is is uh, kind of the the Azure SharePoint template is one of those things that we typically tell folks, hey, you probably want to take a moment and consider maybe not using this as your production farm. Like, I, I'm not going to question the way that it's set up and the way that it's configured, um, but just that the fact is, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, but you still can't go and choose... Uh, which <clears throat> domain controllers you're going to use. So you're still constrained to setting up your own domain controllers in Azure for that farm to consume. And so you end up having to go down the path of uh, setting up ADFS and using that for your authentication instead of having uh, your local domain controllers that you extended out through S2S or through you know, ExpressRoute or something be able to use that. So maybe someday. Um, I know... That would be one of those niceties, and like uh, you mentioned in the SQL template, they've added that ability to use your own uh, Windows domain controllers. Hopefully, at some point, we'll see that come down to like the SharePoint stuff. Um, the the other thing is, for those of you at home, um, there are two different portals, and so if you go into the manage.windowsazure.com portal, you'll see kind of a slightly different offering of what's available. You'll see. Uh, different templates that you can use to build virtual machines off of in the IaaS space. 
Whereas if you go into portal.azure.com, the new DevOps portal, uh, you'll actually see kind of a gallery that has these different templates that you can select and spin up an entire farm or an entire SQL infrastructure. So just be mindful that you do have kind of a different experience between which uh, environment you hop into and things like resource groups, they'll show up in that new portal, that DevOps portal, but you won't see them necessarily over in the old portal. So um, just be mindful that the experience is slightly different between the two, depending on what you use. And if you go to the management portal, you'll see little pop-ups at the bottom in the status bar that on a regular basis say, hey, you've got a new way you can manage these. Do you want to go look at them in the new DevOps portal? And typically, for me at least, I'll say no. Uh, because I know my way around the management portal a lot better than I do around the DevOps portal, but that's just me. I don't know if you've kind of run into kind of the same problem of uh, DevOps versus management portals, Scott. Yeah, they're they're all over the place. Like you said, it's it's two different experiences. Um, so so that new preview portal has some exposed capabilities, um, and they're really looking at that as the path forward. Um, it used to be that they they were kind of dependent on uh, the, the backend uh, product team to kind of push things out everywhere. Uh, but they've recently had some updates come out for the preview portal that allow these uh, different product groups. So the group that works on something like Azure websites versus the group that works on Azure SQL to kind of push their own updates and, and do things a little bit more piecemeal. So hopefully that cadence can pick up a little bit. I, I you know, I, I know one thing that um uh, I'm still kind of working through with some of my guys is uh, some of the new functionality that's, it's actually not that new. It's been out for a while, right? Like something like the ability to set uh, static IPs uh, on an IaaS VM. So we, when that functionality was first introduced, we had to do it through PowerShell every time. Um, and, but now you can do that through the preview portal. So, you know, for folks that provision through the GUI, we'll be sitting there and providing the guidance that, okay, if you really want to do this through the GUI, you shouldn't be doing it. We should be automating it with PowerShell if we can. But if you can't go down that path or, you, you know, for some reason your head's in the sand and you don't want to go there, all right, let's go ahead and create your IaaS VM uh, over in the old portal because that side is actually more robust and works a little bit better. And then when we need to do our final configuration, now we need to hop over to the preview portal um, to make some of those other changes. I, w I wanted to step back to something you actually said too um, about the resource templates and everything. So um, you mentioned kind of the, the way these are released out and how they offer different functionality. So the this new SQL Always On template allows you the ability to join an existing domain. The SharePoint template doesn't. Um, one of the things that's kind of missing from resource templates today or that I hope they add over time is kind of chaining to say, okay, if I want to stand up something like a SharePoint farm, a SharePoint farm actually requires a domain controller, a SQL server, and a SharePoint uh, server, one or more. So why not say, let, let's run those as individual templates. So maybe I have an AD template, a SQL template, and a SharePoint template, um, and they can all build on each other. So if I already have an AD, good, I only need to run the SQL template and then the SharePoint template. If I already have a SQL server in an Active Directory, good, let me just run the SharePoint template and build on top of that. So that's something where, uh, the AWS side of things really excels. So their cloud formation templates and kind of uh, their guidance that's out there, it all builds on top of each other. So if you want to provision a SharePoint farm in AWS, you're actually going to go ahead and run through the AD template and then the SQL template and then the SharePoint template. It'd be nice to see some of that kind of chaining or functionality like that 
because right now what we're missing is kind of insight into what's going on. Or it'd be nice for some of those product teams to open up. So like I said, like the SharePoint product group, that resource template, it's not actually published out for consumption. So as end users, we can make use of it, but I can't go out and pull down the actual backend template, the JSON behind it and play with it. So it'd be, it'd be nice if, if I had the ability to do that, I would just go make those changes myself and I'd be done with it. But as a customer of Azure, uh, I'm left having to recreate the wheel and start from scratch. So, so th that hurts a little bit. So I think uh, the one thing, of course, is just to remember that uh, Azure does Excel kind of with a platform woven into IaaS, and our AWS friends can kick the crap out of IaaS typically. Most days, some days. Although the new Godzilla machines are definitely pretty awesome. Yeah. You, you know, one of, one of the places where I think they, they don't excel so much on the AWS side is kind of the the CLI and management. It's just a little bit behind some of the PowerShell and the help and, and things that are built into it. Um, and also, you know, maybe some of that tooling that, that comes along on the other side. So one of the interesting things that came out um, late last year, back in December, uh, November, December timeframe, um, were things like the new um, Azure uh, Active Directory Authentication Libraries, ADAL. Um, and so doing some things like, uh, you know, in PowerShell, we have the ability to basically just write C-sharp code, or we can interact with existing DLLs. So one interesting blog post that I saw out there was uh, from a, um, a, a Microsofty, uh, Keith Mayer. Uh, he actually had a great blog post about uh, running and authenticating against the service management API. So the, those REST APIs, um, going ahead and authenticating against them uh, via REST through PowerShell, but making use of those newest libraries to go ahead and run things through. Um, so I, I tend to look at uh, you know, some of that tooling on the Microsoft side uh, as, as being a, a little bit more um, robust, uh, just because they, they've kind of put the, the care into feeding into, into help and guidance versus the AWS side where they've said, okay, we've been so focused on Linux for so long, um, let's just have a CLI that, that works, it does what it does, it's really not gonna do any more until we say it's gonna do any more. Um, so I, I love having that ability to go out and augment, and especially as we look at the way PowerShell's progressing, so once we get up into V5 and we can do like our own classes just in, uh, just in PowerShell and we get uh, the whole DSC thing on top of it, um, all this stuff becomes really super, super powerful. And then we combine that with these awesome just client libraries that Microsoft has released. They've, they've put a lot of care and effort into those libraries. Uh, it, it builds a great story around um, not only managing your solutions, uh, but also building them out and then maintaining them uh, as time goes on. Which definitely does come in handy. I mean, it's... Uh... Very cool to be able to see the kind of future of Azure and I guess more the, the PowerShell side of things um, start to integrate into things just in that sense of, you know, application lifecycle management, be able to write our own code and start to process it helps out tremendously. It's, it's a great space. And then especially as we start to get tie-ins to other services. So... Um, I, I know uh, you work in the Office 365 space and uh, you're working with clients that are doing those things. Um, and one thing that 
I notice with a lot of my clients is if they're just pure Office 365 customers, they don't even realize that there's uh, an Azure subscription sitting behind them. Um, and I'm starting to see some of my customers are actually starting to pick up things uh, like Intune as well. So now we've got Office 365 and we've got Intune. And now all of a sudden we, we can really start to push some of the Azure services behind that, especially with all of our identity being driven out of Azure Directory. So one of the really cool things that came out in this space was uh, the ability to do workplace join uh, with Azure Active Directory. So if you are an Azure Active Directory premium subscriber, um, so that's either you're an Office 365, eSKU, um, and, you've turned, and you have that turned on, or you've got uh, an enterprise agreement and, and you're into that premium SKU, you can actually do workplace join against your Azure AD. So you don't have to have ADFS on-premises and everything else to, to start doing these things. You can actually just do them with your identity in the cloud. And one of the really cool things that came along with this was uh, the ability for Indune uh, to be able to set some of those conditional policies uh, within Intune and then apply those back to your Azure AD. So all of this tooling is really starting to come together. So one of the really neat things I saw um, just a couple days ago is a, a blog post about um, conditional access for uh, SharePoint Online leveraging Windows Intune. So for organizations that have Intune, they can actually go into their Intune portal. They can create some uh, access policies, uh, some conditional policies uh, that, that'll say, um, you know, maybe you want to make sure that um, anybody who accesses SharePoint Online from a mobile device, so, uh, you know, they're hitting their OneDrive for Business client um, on their iOS or Android device, you want to make sure that they're at a certain patch level or that they're not rooted or jailbroken or, you know, even very simple things like, hey, I want to make sure they have a uh, password uh, deployed on their phone and, and what's that going to look like. Um, so now customers can go out and uh, manage things like that um, through Intune, building on top of all of those uh, bits and pieces of functionality that have been put into Azure Active Directory. Yeah, which is, <clears throat> to me, that's pretty crazy just because you're starting to see Microsoft peel back the... Uh... Uh, the banana peel, um, the onion peel just doesn't sound right. Uh, the banana peel of having to have things hosted on premise to do work. And so very much like uh, Satya Nadella has been saying for a while, you know, cloud first, mobile first. Um, it's it's really cool to start seeing some of these things like the, the workplace join popping up into the Azure portal and being able to do some of that uh, MDM for less of a better term, I guess. Uh, but yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm very stoked to see more and more of this stuff kind of coming out. And I'm hoping, really, really hoping that, you know, we'll see a day sometime in the future where we don't have to have so much stuff on-prem. Because even, and I don't know if you've run into this, but the, the thing that always kind of cracked me up is when organizations would say, well, we want to go holy cloud, but we still need to have some redundancy and it ends up being one of those things where it's the well you still need to have some domain controllers and you still need to have maybe a coop site a continuity of operations site because you've got disaster recovery requirements and hey maybe you want to use this third-party service which hosts like a copy of your active directory catalog 
somewhere else so that you can still get in if your internal system gets crushed and you know being able to see more and more of the components not necessarily have to be hosted on premises uh, pretty cool to see that story starting to take shape yeah I, you know it's it's been interesting to have those conversations with folks so uh, when they say, you know, we want to go all in on the cloud, what does that actually mean? Like you said, so we have to capture maybe uh, what you're doing with Coop and DR and, and everything else today. Um, is what you're doing right? Is, is maybe there a better way to do it? And I think there's some great stories that, that we can push as IaaS grows up a little bit, uh, particularly in Azure. So there, there's some things that are really easy to do. Um, so when we start to talk about kind of the, those uh, continuity of operations and disaster recovery scenarios, and we want to be able to run a, uh, a, a national or a, a global operation and, and be able to do kind of these regional failovers, that's gotten significantly easier in Azure now that we can do not only site-to-site -site VPNs, but we can do VNet-to-VNet -VNet VPNs. So I can actually have um, two VNets. I can have one sitting in like US West and another sitting in US East. And I can have those talk to each other over Microsoft's backbone um, and their backend, and they can tie together with that IPsec VPN um, and just run all the traffic across that. So that opens up some really interesting things when we talk about like SQL failover or doing uh, some of the uh, SharePoint farms and things like that, or even just straight identity. Um, so if I want to run Active Directory domain controllers and I want to have multiple sites, hey, it, all right, if we can't run those on-premises anymore, um, let's run one in east and one in west and have them replicate between each other and do all those things. Um, and then I know a lot of the organizations I work with too, you know, we're starting to be able to take a step back with some of the tooling that's been introduced, um, particularly on the identity side. So now that we've got um, password syncing, that, that password hash um, that can be synced with DurSync or uh, AAD sync. Uh, from our on-premises systems up to Azure, uh, you know, we, we had a lot of organizations that would do like ADFS in the past, um, and maybe they didn't understand that distinction between simple sign-on and single sign-on, like that same sign-on scenario. And it turns out that at least for some of the organizations we're talking to, uh, that same sign-on scenario works for them. They, they really didn't need SSO. So I, I know in a couple of cases, we've been able to turn that off. And now we just do straight DirSync with um, password sync turned on and we've cut those ADFS servers completely out of the loop. So, you know, for some organizations, that means we've eliminated seven servers on premises and we're starting to live a, a little bit more in the cloud, uh, which, is, which is really nice to see. So I, I think over time, uh, organizations are going to be able to get there. Obviously, it's not for every organization, right? You, you, you have to have um, kind of the um, the ability, whether that's uh, compliance or regulatory, to be able to, to get up there and put those workloads up there. But if it is appropriate, uh, in a lot of cases, it makes sense and, and it's just great to do. Um, and, you know, a, a lot of these vendors, um, Microsoft in particular, they've been kind of, like you said, they've been playing catch up on the IaaS side with uh, AWS. Um, so they've been making a big push around providing better guidance for uh, kind of the, the, the compliance side of things and how we can turn things on. Um, so they, they uh, earlier this month, they just came out with a new security white paper um, for network security. So this seems to be missed by uh, a lot of folks when they go out and, and look at Azure and they say, well, 
you know, it doesn't do X, Y, or Z, and, and they throw up their hands and they, they just kind of walk away in disgust. Um, but with a little bit of research, it turns out it can do a, a lot of things. So um, some of these capabilities that are out there in Azure on the networking side, you know, it used to be we used to put everything in a cloud service, and then we would rely on uh, the NAT around that. And, you know, we'd be limited by the number of cloud services we could have in a subscription and, and some other things. Um, but Microsoft's actually uh, making a big point about how we can segment workloads within uh, distinct VNets. So, um, you know, some of their latest guidance comes out and it actually um, walks through the scenario of, hey, let's have deployment networks. So let's have or even let's just have um, like deployments for an application. So. If I want to have a, uh, maybe I want to have a couple of different uh, IS web farms, um, and they really don't need to talk to each other, they need to be totally segmented, um, we, we have the ability to do that and shut those down. Um, so we can use things outside of uh, the existing ACLs that existed on cloud services. We can come back and we can leverage this new thing called, uh, or newish thing, it's been out for a couple months now, um, called network security groups where we actually get a lot more control about the ingress and egress of traffic um, to VNets, to cloud services, or all the way down to individual VMs. Um, and then one of the nice things we can do is now that we have all this additional control, we can start to do really cool things like, um, I know I have some organizations um, that say, well, it's great that we can shut down um, inbound internet access to our VMs, um, but as soon as somebody hops on and they remote into one of those VMs and they want to go out and browse the internet, they're not hitting our proxies anymore. Um, they're not following our security protocols. They're just, they're just going straight out to the internet. Um, so one of the things that was introduced uh, was uh, the concept of forced tunneling. So combined with network security groups and some other things, we can actually say, hey, within, uh, within this set of servers or, or this set of VMs, I want to force all the traffic through a particular route. So if I have something in place like a site-to-site -site VPN or express route, and I have maybe some blue coat proxies or some type of um, outbound uh, forward proxy that I want to use on premises and I want to route traffic through that, you can actually force those routes with force tunneling. All your VMs are now going to browse down and, and be able to do what they need to do. Uh, so, so really cool kind of stuff that, that's open and out there that, um, you know, I think it just takes some education to to push that out and and get people to know what's out there. Yeah, I think the the one thing about force tunneling that <clears throat> most folks just uh, kind of skip by or don't realize is uh, the fact that the capability is there and you don't necessarily have to have you know that front end network or back end network or whatever. Um, internet accessible um, but you do have to always remember that you can't necessarily use force tunneling unless you have I want to say uh, S2S or express route available but I could be wrong on that um, no I believe you're correct you have to have that in place because really we can't run some of those other solutions in Azure today right so I, I think some of those kind of forward proxying solutions and other things where you want to force the traffic to if we're already running those workloads on premises, great. Let's continue to just leverage what we already have. Um, some of that stuff should be coming to Azure. Uh, it's on that cloud platform roadmap that we talked about in the last episode. They should actually have a lot of uh, network devices coming down the pipe. 
um, whether that's uh, load balancers. So uh, we've already got Kemp and some other things out there. Um, hopefully we'll see some tooling from other vendors like F5. And they've also talked about having some network security devices, some, some virtual devices uh, be able to come into play as well in the marketplace. So I think over time, maybe we'll see some of those, uh, uh, some of those other bits and pieces uh, come out and be able to hopefully have uh, a real appreciable impact on, on the solutions that we can deploy out there. Uh, but for today, you know, we're going to go ahead and just push things down. Um, and say, hey, let's let's route it back on premises. Um, th that's fine, you know. And and this is great, like you said, for those organizations that can't put everything in the cloud. Totally get that, right? Like nobody's saying you have to have all your stuff out there. But for the things that we can put up there, where they make sense, because we either need burst compute or the storage is cheaper or whatever, let's go ahead and do that. Let's put it up there, and we can still offer you uh, kind of that compliance. Um, and hopefully we can sell the security side of things uh, to the folks that it needs to be sold to. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm wholly on board with you on that. I think uh, <clears throat> just folks really need to go through and, you know, while they're planning out their infrastructure, so to speak, in Azure, uh, read through all the documentation that, you know, has information about the dynamic IPs, the uh, virtual IPs, the reserved IPs, the static IPs, and understand how those can be added, how those you know, depending on uh, how you're trying to assign it. So like the uh, setting that, I want to say it's a reserved, no, the static IP has to be put in place when you build the machine, a reserved IP you can toss on kind of at any point, but the reserved IP is one of those things, it's kind of like equivalent of a EC2 uh, elastic IP. Um, so there's just, you know, kind of that, that translation of understanding all the networking nuts and bolts before actually stepping in and trying to put something in. And it, it seriously, for me at least, cracks me up when I see folks trying to take something that they build in their network and where they've got, you know, different network adapters doing different jobs and segmenting things out and trying to put that up into the cloud and it just becomes a bloody mess. And so understanding all these pieces understanding how the security works understanding how the network traffic flow works is just very very you need to know it if you're going to start building these solutions up in azure or you need to know the people that you can go ask and say hey dan hey scott how does this work how does routing actually work inside azure how do we you know do these things or turn out to turn around and hop on twitter and ping trevor sullivan or michael washam and say hey guys we uh we had some questions for you uh, your Azure MVPs give us some give us some feedback or insight on these things. So, yeah, yeah I, you know, it's it's definitely one of those interesting things, right? It's not so much um, can we do it because the answer is usually well, yeah, we can do anything. Uh, it's more around uh, can we educate you, uh, you know, the consumer enough to make you feel comfortable with deploying whatever solution you want up there. So, you, you know, for those customers that have uh, multiple NICs and kind of those, those management and backend networks and, and all that segmentation down to the, the, the NIC level, uh, you know, do you, do you really need that, um, you know, up in Azure? What's the amount of traffic that we're going to be pushing through? Um, you know, if we look at things on the backend and how everything's going to work with the VNet and talk to storage and everything else, uh, can we architect your solution a little bit differently so that it performs the same or better uh, but it's, it's, it's just going to look different, but it's still going to have the, the same characteristics. 
Yep, and I think you know once folks kind of understand how the networking works and how the solution's being implemented, that they'll start to have a little bit more ease of, oh, that's how that works. Yeah, obviously that's how we want to do that. Um, the only other thing kind of in the Azure world that I wanted to speak about tonight or today or this morning, um, depending on when you're listening to this, uh, was more kind of around uh, <clears throat> if you're doing uh, working around, you know, taking different solutions and dropping them in or out of an Azure subscription, um, some of the little problems you'll run into every so often. So primarily in this case, uh, if you're dealing with SQL databases, specifically the Azure SQL databases, those usernames and passwords that you create with those are pretty vital. So you want to make certain that you store them somewhere, whether it be LastPass or, you know, one password or KeePass or some other solution have those passwords and usernames available to you because when you try and export them, if you try and take uh, that Azure SQL database and you say, well, I'm turning it off, I'm not using this Azure SQL database anymore, I want to export it or I want to move it to another subscription, if you don't have that username and password, you're not going to be able to export it. You can make a copy of it and move it from one subscription to another, but you're never actually going to be able to get back into it. So just, you know, be mindful that those things do have some purpose and they do need to be recorded appropriately. Otherwise, you'll have these wonderful databases that are chocked full of information that you used on a project, but you no longer have access to. So, uh, yeah, keep those handy. Otherwise, you will cry a little bit. Excellent. So so just some more post-it notes on our monitors? Yeah, yeah. More post-it notes, more uh, tattoos of passwords that you have to get updated every 90 days. Those are kind of painful. But, um, yeah, you know, just... Uh, be cognizant of things that you write and uh, put as passwords. Otherwise, you're going to run down into the path of a lot of work to try and get back into things. And I'm pretty certain if you open up a support ticket and you say, hey, Azure Help Desk, uh, we screwed up. Can you help us out? They'll probably say, sorry, we, we can't get in either. It's on you. So, yeah, it's not, uh, not an easy thing to have to go through, I guess. But I think that's uh, that's all we've got today. Anything else on your mind that you want to share? No, let's let's go ahead and close it out here, and uh, we'll come back next week and chat a little bit more. Sounds good, man. Have a great week, and catch up with you soon. All right, Dan. Have fun. Cheers. Cheers.